good to sing songs that are true, isn't it? Amen. Sometimes we want to sing songs that are only happy or upbeat or have a fast tempo. Those songs are good. But better than the beat is the words of the song. Amen. Better than the beat is the, the truth of the song. The song we just sang speaks so truly of, of not only the experience of so many Christians in our day, as Warner talked about. The song we just sang speaks so truly of the experience of Christians throughout all time. And if you read the words of the song, it seems like uh, the author might have just read the book of James and said, let me pen a song, talking about life's afflictions, talking about the fiery trials. And yet, in the midst of those fiery trials, telling saints to sing for joy. I mean, maybe, just maybe, Christians are to read the scriptures and make songs from the scriptures. I mean, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's why we sing songs of joy in the midst of affliction. Because the Bible puts a new song in our hearts. Everybody in the world faces some kind of affliction, but the Bible is the only book that gives us a reason to have joy in the midst of affliction. Because the Lord is with us. Because the Lord will guide us, because the Lord is leading us somewhere. That's what James wrote to suffering Christians about 2,000 years ago. As they faced affliction, James said, you can have joy. And so that's why when we meet on Sunday mornings, as we've done for the past eight, nine weeks, and open up the Bible, we do so looking to be informed from saints of the past. We don't simply live in the present banking on and leaning on our present experiences, we know we need something better. We need wisdom from above, fleshed out through wisdom from the past so that we might live wise in the present. And so this morning, we continue our study in the book of James. And if you have your Bibles, you go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and this morning, we'll look at verses 1 through 11 together. I know it says 1 through 12 in your bulletins, but we'll look at the first 11 verses and pick up at verse 12 next week. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, 
being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So I think it's the main point of these first 11 verses in James chapter 5, the main point of the sermon this morning. Pretty simply, Christians should patiently endure suffering, knowing that the Lord is coming soon to repay his enemies and to rescue his people. Christians should patiently endure suffering, knowing that the Lord is coming soon to repay his enemies and to rescue his people. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll notice two distinct addressees, two distinct groups to whom James speaks. The rich in verses 1 through 6, and brothers and sisters in the faith, Christians in verses 7 through 11. And for those two groups, James has two basic messages, one for each group. And those two messages will serve as the two points of the sermon this morning. So point number one, to the rich, be warned. Be warned. We see that in verses 1 through 6. And number two, to believers, be waiting. We see that in verses 7 through 11. So number one, be warned. And number two, be waiting. Number one, be warned. Look with me again at verse one. James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James here singles out a particular group of people here, the rich, and he warns them that miseries, that troubles, that judgment is coming their way. And it immediately begs the question, why is James so against rich people? Perhaps James is like some in our day, ticked off that those at the top have so much wealth and power. You might remember about a decade ago, a protest movement called Occupy Wall Street began in New York City objecting to the economic inequality between the, the wealthiest 1% of our country and the other 99% of us other folk. If there's a 1%er in here, <laughs> you need to give more. <laughs> uh, perhaps those, those, those folks who who occupied Wall Street for months at a time, who slept outside in tents. They can get on board with James's call here for the wealthy to, to weep, to, to wail. Or maybe James's harsh language sounds like some today who, who seem to castigate all riches, who advocate a simplistic, radical lifestyle that aggressively attacks any semblance of wealth. I mean, do you really need a house? <laughs> 
a car, clothes, shoes even. For some people, rich equals wrong and poor equals piety. But James is, James is called here. His condemnation of the rich is not like some modern conceptions. He doesn't condemn all rich people, and friends, neither does the Bible. Riches can bring great temptation. The Bible is clear on that. The love of riches causes all kinds of evil. The Bible is clear on that. But the presence of riches and rich people themselves are not inherently condemned, are not inherently more evil than anybody else. I mean, Abraham was rich. Isaac and Jacob were rich. Job was rich. David was rich. They had great wealth and they were godly people. So, so this is not a, a widespread takedown of all the rich people in, in verse 1. You can be rich and righteous. Rather, James is addressing the unrighteous rich in this verse. It becomes clear as he enumerates the many evils that they commit in verses 2 through 6. There will be a great reversal, James says. Though these people may be rich now, they will be miserable later. Why? Because of their actions now. Oh, what do they do? Well, James notes four things in verses 2 through 6. First, verses 2 and 3 tell us that they hoard their stuff. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. James says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. If you're observing, it sounds like James is copying his big brother, Jesus. He's thinking how Jesus thought, saying what Jesus said. He's saying, you know, that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Being of one mind with Christ. Loving what Jesus loves and hating what Jesus hates. Following his example and his instruction, we are Christians. Only in as much as we follow our namesake, Christ. It was Jesus who first said in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Well, these people James condemns here have not followed Christ's instruction. They have laid up treasure on earth. And friends, all earthly treasures decay. I mean, notice how James speaks in the past tense in verses 2 and 3 to mark the surety of this thing happening. Your riches have already rotted. Your garments are already moth-eaten. You don't see it put on that shirt with a white undershirt under it. You see that holes all through that sweater that you didn't see before. Your gold and silver have already begun corroding. You might think gold and silver can't corrode. Oh, they lose value. 
they don't last forever. Gold might be appreciating in our time, but our time won't last for all time. None of it lasts. All earthly treasures depreciate, decay, and come to an end. Me and Jerry Jr. the other day were were up here and, and got on the topic of creating generational wealth. You hear a lot of people talk about that in our day. People creating genera- generational wealth, working to create generational wealth. It's good to, to plan and to think about the future of people in your family. But, but friends, sometimes this, this concept of creating generational wealth comes across as if it will always last. It won't. I mean, all it takes for generational wealth to come to a ruin is for one generation to blow it. All the hard work to get and to keep all that wealth that you and your parents and grandparents have labored for can be gone in an instant by some knucklehead son or daughter. Some live for today nephew. Some person who take your estate you ain't even know about. They come out the woodworks when you die, don't they? And yet you keep living to simply amass more and more and more of what is perishing, of what is passing through your hands like sand, acting as if it will last forever. It matches the attitude James talked about in the passage we looked at last week, where people live as if they will live forever, as if tomorrow is promised, and so they make their plans the priority. Well, James says here, they they treat their stuff the same way. They, in essence, say, I'll live forever, and all my cash and all my clothes and all my cars and all my castles will come with me. I have them at my disposal forever. People lay up treasures here. What instead you should spend your time doing is laying up treasures for heaven, especially considering the time. Notice the end of verse 3, James says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Many of us think of the last days through the lens of movie screens. Or some apocalyptic event, some some zombie invasion. Or some life-extincting meteor hitting the earth. Or some human-eliminating virus striking all mankind is what marks the last days. But you know how the Bible defines the last days? As what we're living in right now. We are in the last days. In the Old Testament, the the last days looked to the coming of the Lord to the earth. Well, friends, that's happened. That's what many people will celebrate on Christmas. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth. But what the New Testament crystallizes is that there are two comings. Jesus' incarnation and Jesus' return. And the New Testament identifies the time in between those two, between Jesus' coming to, to die on the cross for our sins and raising from the grave and ascending into heaven, and the time when he returns, all that time in between, the New Testament calls the last days. So from 33 A.D., To 2022 A.D., we are in the last days. How horrible is it then to use this time 
to just accumulate wealth for your stuff as if you're living in the early days. As if there are no last days. As if the last days for you are simply luxurious days. No, James says, these are the last days. And that's what you're doing? Don't you know what time it is? Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And you are doing the very thing he said not to do. Storing up treasures on earth. Which shows where your heart is. More focus on stuff than on the Savior. Jesus said, where, you, where your heart is, there your treasures will be also. Or, or better, where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. Friends, do you consider that you and I are living in the last days? How does that transform your view of money, of stuff, of how you live? I mean, you remember growing up when you knew it was the last few minutes before your parents came home from work. It led to some actions. You made sure that that house was clean before your parents pulled up into that driveway. You made sure there was at least some semblance that you worked on your homework a little bit before they came home and you asked for help. Kids are like, can't you just track their movement on your smartphone? Doesn't the ring doorbell alert you when they pull up? No, we didn't always have those things, right? You had the time, they're supposed to come home at 5.30, and so from 5.17 to 5.30, you like tossing stuff all over the place to clean up in expectation of your parents' arrival. Their sure arrival transformed your actions. Does Jesus' sure arrival transform your actions? Do you spend your last days laying up more stuff for yourself? Is that how you're spending this Christmas season? Is that what you're looking forward to for Christmas? More stuff. Instead of reflecting on the reality that Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ is coming back. These rich that James condemns hoarded stuff that won't last and neither would they. The corrosion of stuff would be evidence against them that they too would be consumed by God's coming judgment. Not only did these people hoard stuff, but they also withheld from others. The second evil action they did, they they defrauded and oppressed the poor. Look at verse 4. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. A clearer picture here of who these unrighteous rich are, comes into focus. They seem to be rich landowners who had people working on their land but refused to pay them their wages. It's something we see time and time again condemned in the Old Testament. Such a temptation was it and so serious was it that the Lord ingrained it into the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through 15, God commands, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. It's what the prophets 
continually condemned the people of Israel for doing, cheating the poor. And it's what people were still doing in James's day. It's what people are still doing in our day. Friends, oppression is not some kind of make-believe word that people are putting on every circumstance. Some folks are using it like that. Oppression is a biblical word. More than that, oppression is a biblical sin that the Bible says none of us should be guilty of. That the Bible says the Lord hates. Building wealth at the expense of others is wrong. It basically says I can keep more profits if I don't have to pay nobody. Friends, the evil system of slavery in America was built on this sin. Greed fueled the oppression of people to build personal fortunes. It's an age-old problem. It's an age-old sin. The poor in James's day were day laborers. They depended upon the money from a day's work to provide for themselves and their families. But there were these wicked, wealthy landowners who'd hire the workers, but who'd not pay them, or who'd pay them less than what they agreed upon. Or some might say, that's shrewd business. The Bible says that's wicked sin. God cares for the poor and cares that you don't care for them. And he will repay you for your wickedness. Look at the end of verse 4. The wages of the laborers are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The oppressed probably complained to these wealthy landowners about the unjust ways in which they were treating them, but their cries seemingly fell on deaf ears. But James says, but the, the Lord hears. You might cry to them and nothing changes, but the Lord takes note. And the Lord will avenge. The Lord of hosts will one day wet his sword and bend his bow to break the boast of the riches who trashed people to gain their treasures. The third sin that, that the rich that James condemns are guilty of is, is living self-indulgent lives. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's similar to up in verses 2 and 3. They amassed stuff to spend it only on themselves, to live in personal luxury. And here's the problem. The problem is not in having nice stuff. The problem is in the failure to understand this. That money, clothing, equipment is not simply intended to be had, but to be used. And to be used not just on yourself, but on others. You understand that? Money is not something to just grab, to get money, clothing, cars, equipment, houses, all that God gives you to use, to minister to others with. In Acts chapter 20, verses 33 through 35, the apostle Paul tells the Ephesian elders, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I wasn't treasuring stuff on this earth. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. You know, Paul said, I didn't want your stuff. I labored 
to provide for myself, and listen to that last part, and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Apostle John says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Great wealth, lots of stuff, great blessings from God is not to keep fattening your wallets, your bank account. It's not to keep building bigger barns. It's meant to, to be used to help others who may be hurting, to help others who may be in need. The rich here saw people in need, and they contributed to, to them being in need, and they said, in essence, too bad for them. How much more can I get for myself? James here warns, all you're doing is fattening up yourself for a day of slaughter. You're just making yourself plumper and plumper and plumper for the Lord when he returns to kill you like a fat cow in the field. The fourth and final reason James warns the rich of coming judgment that is due to them is found in verse 6. They have condemned and murdered the righteous person without reason. They haven't resisted or put up a fight, yet the unrighteous rich have attacked these innocent people. How have they murdered them? Well, it's not explicitly said, but it's, it's probably not the kind of cold-blooded murder that's, that's associated with, with a stabbing or a kind of vicious killing or something to that effect. But a slower death, but just as cold and just as calculated. In stealing from the poor for their own gain, they deprived them of making a living. They, they took bread from their tables, bread that would ultimately lead to starvation if they kept on keeping from them. It would lead to deprivation. deprivation. It would lead to death. And the oppressed have no power to fight back. No wonder then that James condemns the rich in these six verses and says that miseries are coming upon them because of the miserable ways they've treated others in pursuit of their riches. Perhaps like me, though, you, you wonder why James includes this condemnation here in this letter. I mean, James addresses the unrighteous, the ungodly riches in this verse, in these verses, but this letter, along with every other letter in the New Testament, is not written to the ungodly. It's not written to the unrighteous. It's written to believers. It's written to the church. So then, why address unbelievers directly here in a letter to Christians scattered abroad in local assemblies? Well, I think for three reasons. To convict the guilty to constrain the tempted, and to comfort the victims. First, to convict the guilty. James addresses the, the rich directly here to convict the guilty rich wrongdoers as they come in contact with this verse. Well, how would these unbelievers come in contact with this verse? Well, as they attended local gatherings of believers. You know, these gatherings of Christians in the the New Testament in the first century were open to the public. 
Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 when he talks about tongues and interpretation and the need for church services to be intelligible. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. First, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first, we're very glad that you're here. You are welcome to come to Temple Hills Baptist Church services any Sunday that we are here. This is an open public gathering. But friends, I hope you understand something of the purpose of our services for you. And I think it's important to know that because often we have some misunderstandings, some wrong assumptions about the purpose of church services. We often assume that when we visit a church, we're supposed to be encouraged. Church it's supposed to make us leave feeling good. But friends, the church's job is not to make you feel good about your sin. Not to make you feel good about continuing in your sin. Our job isn't intentionally to make you feel bad either, right? But that's why at our local church, what we simply do is open up the Bible and walk through a text of the scripture and so simply say what the Bible says. And what the Bible does is meet you in your unbelief. What the Bible does is shine a light on your sin. It doesn't glaze over your sin. It doesn't ignore your sin. It doesn't stroke your ego by diminishing your sin. But rather the Bible says how bad your sin is and how much trouble you are in. So that you might be convicted. You hear what Paul said? If you have intelligible church services where you simply proclaim what God says, unbelievers come in and they are convicted and they fall to their face and worship God. Amen. I pray that's the effect the preaching of God's word has on you this morning. If you are here in sin this morning, whether it's this specific sin of greed or some other sin that has you trapped, that has you in bondage, like our brother Joseph talked about his former life and all of our former lives being, I pray that the Lord would convict you of your sin and turn you to the Savior, Jesus Christ, that you might have salvation from your sins this morning, that you might have freedom from the wrath of God that all of our sins deserve. Come now, you rich, you sinners of any kind, be convicted of what you've done. Be confronted with the judgment that awaits and be converted before it's too late. Amen. One purpose James addresses the, the rich directly is to convict those rich unbelievers who may enter into the presence of the believers, hear this letter being read or preached, and fall on their faces converted. Amen. Friends, come to church. Pray the Lord will use even right now to do this work in your heart. If you don't know the Lord Friends, that's not something that some small group has kind of authority to do. That's not something that a one-on-one -on -one conversation is, is, is best suited for. The public gathering of God's people where the word is preached and sang and prayed is meant to soften your heart and lead you to repentance. Amen. Amen. Another reason James addresses the unrighteous rich in this verse, on these verses, is to constrain the tempted. 
James addresses the unrighteous rich in these verses, but again, it's in a letter to the entire church. And so there are intended lessons for Christians as well. There are lessons for us. One is to constrain or to curb any temptations that we might have to pursue earthly treasures and to desire riches as well. In any temptation we might have to use the riches God has given us solely on ourselves, to live self-indulgent lives, James makes the succinct case, understand where it ends in judgment. Fattening yourselves today is only fattening yourselves for a day of slaughter. That's not a wise decision, James says. Don't be tempted to pursue riches and to pursue using riches on yourself. Know where that pursuit leads. Lastly, James includes these condemnations of the rich here to comfort the victims. To comfort the victims. The reality was that many in the church that James writes to were victims of these wealthy landowners corrupt and vile ways. They were victims of their oppressive treatment. James writes to comfort them. What the rich are doing will not last. They will not continue forever to harm you and to do you wrong. The Lord is looking out for you, is listening to the cries of his people for help, and he will one day come soon to help. He will bring justice to those who are unjustly treated. Which leads to James's second charge that he gives in this passage. Be waiting then. Point number two, be waiting. You can see James shifts in verse seven to specifically address believers. The first six verses come now, you brothers. But the next passage addresses brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who've been oppressed at the hands of the rich he's just described. And notice how James instructs believers to respond to unjust treatment. How James instructs believers to respond to cruel conditions and to persecution. It's not with personal vengeance. James doesn't say it's time to fight back. The next time they try to defraud you, you find a way to defraud them. Fight fire with fire. No, he doesn't encourage personal vengeance. Neither does James advocate political action as the ultimate response. The solution to this injustice you face is not national revolt to overthrow the government. It's not to make the country Christian. So you'll be on top and won't face any of this kind of oppression. No, James is simple, seemingly uninspiring, super hard response to the heavy trials and suffering in this life is this. Patiently endure them. Patiently endure them. Be patient, James says in verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. He repeats essentially the same thing in in verse 8. The Lord's return is a certainty for James. He means for it to be a certainty in our lives. The Lord is coming back to vindicate his people and to reward them for their faithfulness. Be patient, brothers and sisters. Be patient and wait for his return. We don't like those words, though, do we? Waits. Patience. All of us have something of the impatience of a child on a long road trip. We are jittery. 
anxious, we are averse to waiting. We're all like Abraham, aren't we? You remember the, the story in Genesis where God promised Abraham a son? But a year passed and no son. A couple more years passed and no son. A few more years passed and now the man was old and he and his wife Sarah had no children. And so Abraham figured, God is taking too long. I need to take things into my own hands. I need to speed things up. And so he went and grabbed his maidservant, Hagar, and he slept with her and he had a son. Solution. But it wasn't the son that God promised. It's similar to us. The Lord has promised to come back and to judge the wicked and to rescue his people. He's promised to right all wrongs and reign forever and ever with his people living under his good rule, happy for all eternity. But we want that now. And we don't see it. And so we are prone to take matters into our own hands. We murmur and we complain. We, we try to put politicians and policies in place to enact the kind of perfect peace on this earth that will only come when Jesus Christ returns. We lose hearts and lose hope when we suffer. But James says, don't, brothers and sisters. Endure patiently with hope until the coming of the Lord. And you can trust that he is coming for you because he loves you. Saints, Jesus Christ loves us. He came to this world for the first time to show us that love by laying down his life to save us from our sins. The Bible says the Son of God came to redeem us so that we, once sinners, might become sons and daughters of God adopted into his family, and so brothers and sisters and co-heirs with Christ to reign with him forever and ever. Jesus Christ loves us. He came and he died for us and he rose again from the grave and he ascended into heaven, leaving believers here on earth. But he did not leave us alone. He sent us the Holy Spirit as he promised he would to help us live as his people in the midst of all these trials and all these sufferings we face in this life. Amen. But you know what other promise was given when Jesus ascended? What other promise was given when Jesus ascended up into heaven? The promise that he would return. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. As the disciples were looking on, Jesus was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You hear that? This Jesus taken up? will come again. You can bank on that promise being fulfilled. Just as he sent his spirit as he promised he would, he will return as he promised he would. We can wait patiently and endure suffering 
knowing. I mean, not just intellectually, knowing in our bones the Lord is coming back. The Lord has never dropped the ball. He's never been unfaithful to his promises. He loves me, and his love, the Bible tells us, is everlasting. The Lord is coming for us soon. That was something of the theology behind the Negro spirituals that endure even to our day. We don't long to share their circumstances, but we need something of the spirit of those enslaved saints, don't we? Those saints who put into song what their hearts so longed for, for the Lord to come and deliver them. Swing low, sweet chariot, they say, coming forth to carry me home. (laughs) They knew that this world, with all its hardships and horrors, was not home. But the Lord promised that he was going to prepare a home for us and he was coming back to take us home. And so these saints, through some of the most horrible trials, through whippings and beatings and disrespect unknown, unimaginable, waited with hope. These afflicted saints sang with joy. Swing low, sweet Jerry. Come forth and take me home. They waited for him. We must wait for him. James goes on to give us some pictures of what this waiting for the Lord looks like so that we might put it into practice. He says in the second half of verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until he receives, until it receives the early and the late rains. That farmer tills the ground. He puts down that seed, but he cannot produce the crop. He has to wait for the Lord to bring the rain. In Palestine, the, the rain came in late autumn and in early spring. The farmer couldn't speed up the seasons. So that the, 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 the late autumn would be a little earlier in the summer. Or that the early spring would be a little later in the fall. No, he had to, to wait. He couldn't jimmy rig some other watering system. He didn't have an irrigation system set up. He had to wait for the rain. And that crop didn't spring up at the first rain. He had to wait for several rains. He had to wait for the water to come down over and over and over again so that it watered that seed and then produced a crop. James's initial readers living in an agrarian society would have understood the farmer's plight quite well. Waiting had to be his posture. Well, so it must be every believer's posture. God will return, but until then, be like the farmer, James says, who diligently goes about his work until the Lord acts. And so in this illustration, we get an important principle, don't we? Waiting does not mean not working. Waiting does not mean not working. Now, Brother Joseph so powerfully preached that for us a few weeks ago, preaching against idleness. None of us are to adopt the mindset of a twiddling our thumbs or being inactive with the rationale, I'm just waiting for the Lord to come back. Amen. No, you work 
while you wait. You endeavor to live a holy life in every area the Lord has assigned you because you know the Lord is coming back. And you do not want him to find you idle. We'll get there in a few months when we get back in in Matthew. Jesus condemns people for being slothful. I I knew my master was coming back. Well, Jesus said, then why didn't you live well now? Why didn't you work as if your master was coming back? So saints, be faithful to the Lord where he has you and work while you wait. Strive to be an excellent husband or an excellent wife. Strive to be an excellent employee. Strive to be an excellent student. Strive to be an excellent citizen or an excellent teammate. Strive to be an excellent church member as to the Lord. Work, live, strive, endeavor, conduct yourselves in preparation to meet him. If he's coming back, then it should fuel how we live and act now, how we prepare for his return. We should help others prepare to meet him. Share the gospel with unbelieving family members and friends and co-workers. Labor to keep them from the wrath that is sure to come to them if they don't turn from their sins. Pray the Lord would save them. Be bold and tell strangers this Christmas about the real reason for the season. Yeah, it sounds corny, but God can convert through corniness. Be about the business of telling folks the good news about Jesus Christ. Most of us got converted through sloppy gospel presentations. They weren't super articulate. They weren't all tied together theologically, but somebody had the boldness to tell us, you are in sin and going to hell and you need to change. One brother did that at the basketball gym with Brother Joseph. We got stories upon stories. Be one of those stories. Not simply as the one who received that word years ago. Be part of that story even now as the one who gives that word. Who lives to make Christ known as you wait for his return. Like a farmer, keep tilling the soil. Keep planting gospel seeds in anticipation of the Lord's arrival. And trust that the Lord will bear fruit. Like a farmer, James says, you also be patient in verse 8. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Strengthen your hearts if the Lord is coming, right? Fortify your hearts now to face struggles in this life, to fight as you continue to wait. You know, an especially good gift to, to help us to do this, to strengthen our hearts as we wait for the Lord. An especially good gift to help us do this is older saints in the local church. The saints who've been through some trying seasons waiting on the Lord. Saints who can put some steel in our spines as we wait. I mean, folks who can, who can share the Lord's provision and the Lord's protection as they persevered through trials and who can encourage us to trust him as we wait. Some of us get too easily discouraged. We need the wisdom and encouragement and example of others to help us. So friends, draw near to some of the gifts God has given us in folks who've been doing this thing longer than we have. Right? Who face the things that seem to tear us all apart. That's got us all in angst. Like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. Guess what? That sister or brother that's older than you, than you has. Amen. And the Lord has protected them. 
and preserve them. And he will protect you and preserve you. Have a conversation with folks who suffered already and who patiently endured it. Talk to Miss Blanche. Have a conversation with Jerry or Jane West. Talk to Ertha or Ava or David or Kevin. Talk to someone old enough to be your parents or your grandparents and ask them about how Christ has kept them, how Christ has worked to strengthen them. And don't think it's just for them. Trust that he will do the same for you. We need to be built up. It's not optional to build one another up in Christ. You know, when the Bible says to, to encourage and build one another up, that's not a kind of suggestion. That's a command that we need to keep. We need to be built up because of the, of the temptation that trials put on us to fight against one another rather than build one another up. Right? Outside trials threaten to, to break us apart to kill our unity, to make our hearts cold. Jesus said, in the last days, the hearts of many will grow cold. And he wasn't just talking about out there. In here, there is a real threat that as trials and persecutions, as everything else seems to be closing in on Christians, that we would close in on one another. That the hearts of each other would grow cold. And the Bible's command, help one another not have cold hearts. Create a warm corner in your heart for this brother or sister. Draw near, spend time, serve, care for, love, equip, encourage, talk about the goodness of the Lord. I mean, you see James with the warning in verse 9 that the believers can grumble against one another in the midst of trials. I mean, pressures and impatience often threaten to make enemies out of family members. I mean, if you need proof of that, put two of your kids in the backseat on a long trip. They start off as best friends. Hour six, though, they are <laughs> clashing with each other. If you need proof of, proof of that, just look at Twitter, Facebook, or blog posts. As the world has gotten harsher to Christians, Christians have gotten harsher to one another. We're warring with each other with our words. Friends, the Bible continues to, to remind us our fight is not with each other, but against Satan and sin. Don't allow the long wrestle against our real enemies to turn you into fighting with family. When we are to encourage and equip one another to wait for the Lord well, fighting sin and temptation, lest we be judged when the Lord returns like the world will. We are in temptation of living like the world if we don't love and care for one another. James closes here with two final examples to encourage us as we wait. And this time, he takes us off the field and into the scriptures. Look at verses 10 and 11. James says, as as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James helps us to read our Bibles here. Yes, when you read those prophetic books, when you read the book of Job, you should read them and think about what happened to them then. They describe a real time in real history. But you need to also read them as also applying to us now. There are lessons that we should learn from them. The prophets teach us something about patiently enduring suffering. They spoke in the name of the Lord 
when it was unpopular to do so. They spoke in the name of the Lord when people were whoring around, when people were bribing each other, when people were defrauding each other, when people were oppressing the poor, when people were committing all kinds of injustices. It's the same climate James's readers found themselves in. It's the same climate we find ourselves in. Saints, there is nothing new under the sun. God's people have always been opposed, have always been oppressed, have always faced persecutions. But what did the prophets do? They kept on speaking in the name of the Lord. For all the sin and all the struggles and all the suffering and all the threats, they kept saying, thus saith the Lord. They called out sin and called people to repentance before the great day of the Lord came. And it often brought more suffering and more persecution. But they suffered well, waiting for the Lord to avenge them and using their words to keep others from his revenge. They are an example for us to follow. Use your words, use your time to allow others to see you suffering well and to call them to escape the suffering that is coming to them. Lastly, James points to that great example of of patiently enduring suffering in Job. Now, Job didn't suffer perfectly. At times, we may think Job didn't suffer patiently at all. He seemed rather impatient, didn't he? But Job's faith, though seemingly wavering at times, never faltered. He remained steadfast. Through it all, he wanted to know God's purpose. He wanted to to hear God's voice. He wanted to to, to see God show up in the midst of his trials. His thoughts were on the Lord in his suffering. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited in agony for the Lord. And you know what? The Lord showed up, as he always does. The Lord confronted Job at the end of the story and showed simply that he was sovereign and good, and that was enough. He deepened Job's understanding of God as the result of his long suffering. Friends, there's fruit of patiently enduring suffering that we don't immediately see. If you want to grow to know God, yes, read more of your Bible, but James also told us earlier that suffering produces maturity. There's a way that God grows you through trials that you simply cannot get any other way. So don't despise small beginnings of God forming his character and endurance in you through great trials. But even more than that, the the Lord ultimately restored all Job's fortunes. He gave him more and better than he had before. So that James can look back at the incredible trials of Job and at what God did and label, characterize the whole thing as the Lord showing himself to be compassionate and merciful. Friends, if we patiently endure this present suffering in this world, waiting for the Lord to return, the Lord will show the same to us. He will show himself to be the compassionate, merciful, sovereignly good God of all the universe. 
when Christ returns in glory. He will not only rescue us from this world's sin and suffering. He will not only repay those who have done evil. He will abundantly reward us for remaining faithful to him. He will give us more and better than we ever had before. Have you lost houses and properties here? Have you given up status or had status ripped away from you? Don't trip. God will give you an eternal home and an eternal future where you will sit on thrones judging the earth. Have you been defrauded of money? Or have you decided against hoarding up gold and riches in this life? Saints, it will be worth it. The gold so highly treasured here will simply lace the streets as we walk in the new heavens and the new earth. Have friends and family forsaken us because of our devotion to Jesus here? Jesus tells us everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life when he returns. So saints, wait until he returns. Wait with joyful anticipation. Jesus Christ is coming back soon to get us. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to settle our hearts in the midst of suffering and trials. Help us to patiently and joyfully wait upon you. Through the darkest tragedies, Lord, We pray that your word will be a salve for our wounds so that we might say it is well with my soul. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.